on. Stick a nigga like a unicorn. Born, wicked, Lawrence, pow, pow. Turn his fucking throat and I smile. Gonna send me Valley and surely somebody knows the address of the jewelry. Pay a little visit. Who is it? Who is it? Get a crunk to the Grand Wizard. Then boom, make him eat the barrel. Modern day Pharaoh. Now he's zipped up like leather Tuscadero. Pretty soon we'll catch Sergeant Coon. Shoot him in the face, run up in him with a broom. You were just listening to Ice Cube's We Had to Tear This MFR Up. Yeah, I said it. I said, I censored it. You just heard him talk about his plans for LAPD Sergeant Kuhn, who was one of the officers at the center of the Rodney King beating. Ice Cube has been our musical ambassador of sorts throughout this podcast, and I think this last song is a good way to introduce the ending. The song was released in retrospective, dropping in the fall of 92, and looking backward on the extreme violence of the riots. Keep in mind that at the time of the song, Stacey Kuhn and the rest of the three officers acquitted in April of 92 were still acquitted. The riots were over, but the anger was still there. Yep, if you thought that the anger and resentment and tension was over in the last podcast, well, strap in. I have a working theory about these outbreaks of mass violence. They're a little like earthquakes. They're like earthquakes in that they have aftershocks, which is pretty fitting for L.A., actually. The initial outbreak of violence isn't a cathartic break in tension because it sometimes invites more. George Bush the Elder, the President of the United States, had said that the feds were investigating whether a civil rights trial for the four officers who beat down Rodney King was warranted. That trial came. The four officers involved in the beating sat in court again starting February 24, 1993, getting on to a year after the riots kicked off. And Korean Americans in L.A. did not hesitate to begin arming themselves in preparation for that event. Here's a Washington Post piece entitled, quote, Around L.A., The Laying of Arms, end quote, which is a great title for an article, actually. Notice that the Post is specifically looking at the Korean American community in this piece. Quote, On the first day of the current civil rights trial of four Los Angeles police officers, Korean grocer Richard Ree bought 20 assault rifles, 5 field pistols, and 8,000 rounds of ammunition. Police say they are prepared, but I prefer to protect myself, said Ree, 57, pointing to a loaded AK-47 and M16 rifle stacked against the office safe in his California market, one of the few stores successfully defended during deadly riots that began a year ago this month. Gun sales in Koreatown have doubled since opening statements in the federal trial February 24th, and are soaring throughout this city, where the specter of unrest hovers over a downtown courtroom and trust for the future is being tucked neatly into a holster. In a statement expressing concerns about what amounts to a gun-buying craze, Attorney General Dan Lundgren, Republican, also noted the hundreds, perhaps thousands of weapons which were stolen during the riot. End quote. And one thing I want to note before I start getting emails... It's more than one person in this podcast has referred to AR-15s as M-16s. That's the parlance of the time from what I can see. But the M-16 was a fully automatic military rifle and almost never is in the hands of the public, whereas the AR-15 semi-automatic rifle is. The AK-47s in question were undoubtedly not automatic fire either. Anyway, just a technical note, but it kind of shows the uh, firearm literacy among the Washington Post staff. So skipping ahead in the article, quote, One is the Korean young adult team, which grew out of the riot chaos and numbers 50 men, ages 18 to 35, many of whom had army training in South Korea, where service is mandatory. 
Members said that they have vowed to give their lives to save homes and businesses, end quote. Just a note, I believe that the Korean young adult team, which sounds like a varsity sports team or maybe an intramural frisbee team, I believe that the young adult team is one that our buddy Han Sung Chang had been involved in during the 92 riots or maybe a spinoff. So going on in the article, quote, and he's uh, quoting Edward Kim right now. We have guns in the trunk, a Beretta, Colt 45, and Glock 17, said team leader Edward Kim, 30, who travels one hour from his home in Orange County to join nightly armed patrols through Koreatown. Some people will mess with Koreans, but we're not going to tolerate it. We have a responsibility to protect Koreatown, end quote. If there was any doubt in the Korean-American community before April of 92 about what would happen to them if riots broke out, there was no doubt in 93. The panic buying looks a lot like the panic buying of firearms in America in 2020, actually. Korean-Americans brought in the big guns, and they also brought in mercenaries. Armed guards stood at the door of many shops. The California governor prepared to roll out the National Guard when the verdicts came were scheduled to come back anyway. The city seemed poised for a violent reaction to the verdicts, most of all the Korean-Americans, but everybody else as well. They didn't need to prepare, or perhaps their preparation forestalled it, because riots would not break out. Two of the four officers got sentences in the federal trial. That meant two officers walked, but the verdict must have been enough to keep calm in the streets. Interestingly, the judge also lit into Rodney King for being drunk and resisting arrest that night. Nobody left happy from the courtroom, but maybe that's why the proceedings didn't have the anger behind them that the other ones did. U.S. District Judge John G. Davies had presided over the case. An Olympic medalist and jurist, yeah, you can't make that one up, he was also very experienced on the bench because he was there to clean up the mess. This wasn't his first rodeo. He was 62 at the time, meaning he'd seen plenty from the bench, though forever he would be known as the judge that presided over the Rodney King civil rights trial. John G. Davies died just this past March at the age of 90. Angela O. Oh mentioned how she thought the inexperience on the bench had contributed to the riots. I think Judge Davies was probably the kind of judge that the two trials we highlighted in this podcast needed. Rest in peace, Judge Davies. The reaction to the civil rights trial showed a new level of organization and awareness on the part of Korean Americans. There was a new sensitivity to the community around them. No longer could Korean Americans afford to act in isolation. They couldn't just put their nose to the grindstone and expect it all to work out. They could not simply follow the edict, try and you will succeed, because trying was not enough. Korean Americans now had to band together. Their livelihoods, and even their lives, depended on collective action. Because in a lot of ways, Korean Americans of the early 90s and prior had neglected that kind of organization. They'd pulled together only at the last minute when their homes and businesses were aflame. The cost of their way of life had been enormous and ongoing. Take the Lees, for instance, who'd had their store burned to the ground during the riots and then watched their relief money dwindle away. Hai-Soon Lee took a job as waitress to support her and her husband, who'd fallen into a deep depression. She suffered depression too, as well as nightmares, indigestion, and heart palpitations, but she still worked six days a week for 600 bucks a month plus tips. Many lives like theirs were shattered. Insurance simply did not pay for the damages. Like I said in the last podcast, many of the stores were operating illegally or out of compliance. And if you've ever dealt with an insurance company, you know that unscrupulous adjusters always look for the smallest reason not to cover you. Picking up the pieces of the past was hard, 
and putting it all back together again the same way was impossible. Koreatown was desperate for relief. A group of 250 shop owners demanded reparations from City Hall. The story I'm about to tell really demonstrates the awful nature of the bureaucracies that the Korean-American community had to confront. Let me quote at length from an L.A. Times article. Uh, let's see. This was from June 16, 1992. Quote, More than 250 Korean-American merchants demonstrated outside of City Hall on Monday, calling for better government recovery programs and reparations, reparations is in scare quotes, for victims who had lost businesses in the L.A. riots. We need compensation, said Young Soon Han, owner of a Los Angeles liquor store and grocery market that was burned down, as she and other merchants carried signs reading, What happened to the American dream? And Bush, no more lip service. The Korean American Victims Association, which organized the rally, wants the federal government to speed up and simplify the application process for aid, said spokesman Jin Lee. We have been imploring local, state, and federal legislators to respond quickly and fairly to our requests, he said, to no avail. Wynne Henderson, speaking later for both the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Small Business Administration, noted that federal laws demand verification of all financial information submitted before loans and assistance can be approved. This takes time, he said, adding that he understood applicants' frustration. A moment to us is a long time to another person. Henderson said FEMA had been taking two to three weeks to process applications for housing assistance grants and had issued more than 1,200 checks totaling $3.1 million. SBA officials say loans totaling $6.8 million, or 101 out of 1,100 applications, have been approved. But several demonstrators said owners of destroyed businesses, many of them uninsured, should not have to shoulder new loans on top of their existing financial burdens because they were not to blame for the riots. Even if I qualify for SBA loans, it's still a debt, said Han. What about all the money I saved all my life, which is gone? They're squeezing our necks. End quote. One of the reasons I believe that this bureaucratic crackdown came so hard was a lack of representation in politics. There were informal organizations within the Korean-American communities, and we've mentioned a couple, but representation at the various levels of government just didn't exist. Remember, to find a representative of the Korean-American community, Ted Koppel of Nightline found a 35-year-old lawyer, Angela O. Oh. He then proceeded to treat her like garbage, in my opinion. In other contexts, among other ethnic groups, you might have had a state senator to talk on behalf of the community, or some institution to do the same. There just wasn't the political organization out in the Korean-American community, and without interacting with the political system, you can only get so much done for your community. It also opens you to attack. The wheels of power grind you down if you go it alone. A path to enfranchisement and representation wouldn't happen overnight, but it had to happen. The city didn't really put much effort into keeping Korean-American communities happy. It was frying bigger fish, so to say, trying to resolve the departure of Chief Gates, for instance, in favor of their new police chief, Willie Williams, who would be the first black police chief of the LAPD. Daryl Gates would be universally panned for his response to the riots, but wouldn't just fade into the background. He was too stubborn for that. He would go on to host a television show and even had his own SWAT-themed video game called Police Quest. Tom Bradley, the mayor would step down in 1993, not seeing another term, and he died just a few years later in 1998. 
The city changed. The nation changed. Nationally, a new president named William Jefferson Clinton started in January of 93, winning a surprise victory against the incumbent George H.W. Bush, partially helped out by Ross Perot. We should probably do a podcast about Ross Perot sometime. Anyway, the world moved on from the riots, and in the larger picture, Korean Americans faded into the background noise of the riots' narrative. Black versus white, Asian Americans need not apply. Korean Americans had to find their own way. They had to get back to that sense of national identity. They had to get a sense of homeland spirit, but that meant a new spirit. It meant accepting their weave in the fabric of America as tattered as that fabric was in 92. This is going to sound crazy, but I really wish that that racist movie, Birth of a Nation, hadn't forever tainted what is really a great turn of phrase. Because in many ways, Korean Americans founded a new nation within this nation, within the United States, in the aftermath of the riots. In the immediate days after the riots, as the insurance claims came in and smoldering buildings still sent smoke into the sky, a politician visited Koreatown. A presidential candidate, actually. But it wasn't George H.W. Bush and it wasn't Bill Clinton. This other presidential candidate was Kim Dae-jung, who was on the campaign trail for the December 1992 South Korea presidential race, a race he'd end up losing. But during his campaigning in L.A., he made promises to the Korean Americans devastated by the riots. Kim Dae-jung's representatives in L.A. told residents the following, quoted in an L.A. Times article, quote, If Kim Dae-jung is elected, there will be an office of overseas Koreans established within one year to help Koreans abroad, including the one million who reside in the United States. He also said that Kim promises to get a law passed that would grant dual citizenship to overseas Koreans, end quote. Wow. Can you imagine an American president visiting an expatriate community in another country to promise to create a bureaucracy in the home country in order to help bring aid to those people in the other country. It's very different. It's not something I've seen in my lifetime. I don't know if I ever will. But that was the nature of Korean and American relations, and then Korean-American relations within that. The promises to Korean-Americans stateside would spur on similar boasts from other candidates in Korea. This was a big sell to Korean-Americans who had just had their shops torched and livelihoods ruined. Fear pervaded that community, so put yourself in that position. You might be able to get aid from the homeland. You might even be able to cut your losses and go home. Like a lot of politicians' promises, this one didn't deliver. Some Korean Americans were incensed when the relief coming from Asia didn't meet their expectations. Families had spent years sending money to the homeland only to have native Koreans see them as pseudo-strangers to be held at arm's length. While the riots were big news in Korea, they failed to elicit much sympathy. Korean Americans began to split from the old country as a result. In Blue Dreams, which I've quoted quite a bit in this podcast, they quote Min, an educated Korean American shop owner who said, quote, South Korean politicians are 100% for themselves. Korea has absolutely no relation to this, that is the LA riots. It is crazy to think it does. The politicians were just using us, but that brings me to another matter. We need to be Korean-American, not Korean. We are not Koreans, we are Korean-Americans, end quote. So this might seem like a subtle change, but accepting a future in a new homeland is a fundamental shift in perception, and it's not an easy one to do. I've moved in my life, but never to a new country the way these people did. So with that newfound responsibility for their homeland, when organizing began, it came in fits and starts. 
New institutions to support Korean-American community activity and political activism scrambled to take hold. An organization like the NAACP has lots of legacy to it. I suppose in many ways you need to reinvent the wheel when you're franchising a group of people. There isn't a rule book. After a crisis, you always see the arrival of new groups on the scene, and not all of them survive. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Getting people into the same room, though, can bring about great change. Here's a few of the groups that started to, uh, to pop up. We already mentioned the Korean American Victims Association, but there was also the Asian Pacific Americans for a new Los Angeles. There was the Korean American Interagency Council, the Asian Pacific Planning Council. Neighborhood watches and private security groups became an ongoing expense of Korean American stores. No longer were shopkeepers laboring in isolation. They banded together now, and they shared resources. I brought up the difficulty of organizing with Angela O oh in an interview I had with her. We talked a lot about nonprofits, my field, and how getting the support of the community was so hard. You can find the full uh, interview with Angela elsewhere in our archives. It was really an honor to speak with her, and the fact that she took the time to speak to us on the Tinderbox podcast was just flattering, and I, I'm, I was just honored by it. It's amazing. So I want you to listen to what Angela O says about nonprofits and what they do in the community, their lifespan, and how they work. And this is all in her experience, but I think it's very, very on point. And then you end up in, again, we go back to nonprofits, but you end up in these, these groups. And one of the things that I keep running into is uh, the fact that some of these groups that, that arise and they have charismatic leaders they end up being so important, whereas they've struggled for years and years with no recognition. I keep thinking of um, like the Korean American Grocers in 92 Association, right? It's an association of a couple people who are getting together to talk about market issues. All of a sudden, they're at the head of um, these pushes. And, and then it's another challenge. Um, and it seems like, um, so I was wondering if you can comment shortly. I know we're coming up on an hour and I want to be conscious of your time but maybe about the value of those organizations and how to best how to best mediate these things through through community organizations especially when it's so tough yeah i'm not very successful at that <laughs> <laughs> i've tried uh and i'm a mediator i i really i will say that um these organizations that form are really important for the individuals that come together because they're a form of support, you know, psychological, emotional, as well as whatever the, in the case of Kagva, you know, the, mm -hmm. um, the fact that they had this shared experience of being targeted. Yeah. So, so that's what really um, brought them into prominence because of the fact that they were destroyed. Yeah. And um, this and targeted in that destruction, but you know they they were short lived actually. Okay. I mean, it's a remnant of that that continues. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. I think these entities have value in the moment. BLM was starting to fade, and right. now because of this huge, huge yeah. recovery, and so you know I think it's their destiny. I guess I could put it that way. There are some entities that have their own destiny. So our job is not to say what it is as practitioners who join with them at any given moment. Yeah. I think our job is to help them to meet their destiny, whether it is to grow or to dissolve. Yeah. Right. 
And more entities dissolve than grow. The fact of the matter is that we're all really lousy prognosticators. And by that, I mean, few can predict when the tinderbox will light up. I don't know how many times I've predicted that some awful thing will happen. I'm kind of an anxious person as it is, if you can't tell already. Or I'll predict that some explosion of violence will occur. Only none of this ever happens. It just doesn't happen. When violence and mayhem does break out, as it will always do in the course of human affairs, these organizations are the first place people go to for a reaction. So they're really important in that regard. But when the tinderbox is cool, so is interest in these groups. Nobody wants to hear about peace and understanding. It doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't really get people hopped up. It doesn't get them energetic. Conflict is where our minds and our imaginations go. We triage emergencies because it always seems there is a new one. And we always plan for our last crisis. In 1991, nobody really thought a race riot was on the way. I mean, I guess a couple people did. But there was a lot more people worried about what Saddam Hussein would do to little Kuwait. They were worried about their jobs and their livelihoods. They were worried about their family. Or look at modern times. For about 20 years before the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, the United States aggressively pursued global terrorist groups. One figure I read was that my country spent about $5.5 trillion, that's a trillion with a T, tango, T for tango, on fighting terrorism. Another figure said it was closer to $6.5 trillion, but who's counting, right? What's a couple trillion among friends? The CARES Act, which was the relief bill passed by Congress this year for COVID, was about $2 trillion. Later, when this blows over, this whole COVID thing, we will overstock testing reagents and have face mask stashes in every cupboard and every house. We always react to the last crisis and forget that there are new crises right around the corner, ones that many of us, especially those in power, can't even imagine. So when it comes to community organizations like the Black Korean Alliance or the Korean American Grocers Association that I mentioned to Angela, I think it's critical that they exist. And it's their fate, maybe their destiny, to toil. Give of your time and your wealth if you can. And if conflict doesn't appear when you've predicted it, just be glad. Just be glad it hasn't. Because perhaps your proactive action actually forestalled it. On a related note about destiny and falling into unexpected crises, one observation I had, and maybe this goes back to my Making a Greatest Generation podcast, is that the distance between the Watts riots in 65 and the 92 riots was a little less than 30 years. The latter beat out the former for size and ferocity, and now here we are, just short of 30 years between the L.A. riots and today, and urban spaces around my country are seeing ferocious protests and a surge in everyday violence and looting. It's kind of spooky, actually. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I'm a fan of theories of cyclical history, and the more I get into the Tinderbox podcast, the more I think that race riots and other battles come about from amnesia. But it's not Alzheimer's, no, it's a matter of maturity and our ability to pass on knowledge. It's easy to forget, so easy to forget, in the bustle of the present, that when emotions run high, we make mistakes. We can't focus when everything seems like it's on the line. We have trouble maintaining perspective. I think Korean Americans, by becoming brutally disconnected to their homeland through choice or necessity, had lost the kind of cultural antenna we all develop as we get older. I'm getting into woo-woo territory. But that feeling of fuzziness at the edge of the social contract, that feeling of vigilantism starting to rise, people not doing the work that they used to, 
That's all identifiable if you're listening. I quoted St. Augustine, remember? Listen. You have to listen to the other side. I think city government in L.A. should have listened harder. I don't know that Korean Americans could have listened enough to know what was going to happen to them. That's why putting this podcast together gave me a perspective on immigrant communities that I've just never had before. I'm someone who's worked with refugees, too. But reading stories like that of the Du family from the Empire Liquor Market at the beginning of the podcast or Hansung Chang's youth group, or David Ju's militia action, that all gave me a dizzying perspective on what it's like to come to a strange place. I can never walk in their shoes, but I feel like I got pretty close there for a minute. A riot isn't a natural disaster. It's not a volcano, it's not an earthquake. Instead, it's the culmination of active choices, combined with what I might call the null choice, which is the choice not to act. Who acts and who doesn't seems clear in hindsight, but I hope this podcast showed you that with all the politics and economics and general confusion of the moment, we got into the weeds of the narrative. I've already shown you how the fog of war influenced the portrayal of the rioters and the riots through to today, and it just gets complicated. So what can a group like Korean Americans, or what can you, do to recognize what's coming? To take it a step further, let's go back to the beginning of this podcast. I mean the first episode. That's when I asked you, what would it take for you to strike at your neighbor? And if you came up with an answer to that question, if you came up with a list of possible reasons that you might strike at your neighbor, well, I want you to think about them for a moment and perhaps take the next step. How can you recognize when you're about to get to that point? In researching this podcast and talking directly to Angela O, I found myself returning to something common to us all, namely emotion. And maybe I've gone too deep into Hegel and the zeitgeist or psychology and social psychology in which I got a C minus, as I've mentioned. But I started to recognize that the building of anger within a community is something that I just don't think is examined enough. And I don't think it's as quantifiable as people want it to be. I feel that after all this, that the choices communities make in advance of a social disaster like the L.A. riots Those don't come from a place of logic. They don't come from a place of logos, to use the old Greek term. They seem to bubble up from a place of emotion, or pathos, to use the Greek term. In this podcast, we've watched multiple communities build up their anger, unable to diffuse it until the dam breaks and the water drowns them all. I think by now you can guess what I think about the media's role in this process. But I got to talk with two activists, Tim Cornegay and Billy Tang, to hear insider views on how this process of emotion and pathos works. To hear the full interview with them, go back to our archives, because it's a really great talk with two really thoughtful individuals who were recommended to me by Angela O. These two men, both of whom are lifers in the criminal justice system, have returned to their communities with a desire to see more good done. They formed a group called the Black-Asian-Pacific-Islander Solidarity Network, with the intent of keeping up conversations between these two distinct communities within the Los Angeles area. It's the kind of group we talked about before, the one that might have a destiny, hopefully a positive one, that stops anger in the communities before it can get too bad. I asked them about the emotion of the moment and how you can stop it. Listen to our discussion here, this excerpt, and I apologize for the email notification sounds. That was my fault. Do you see the connections that you're making now with with, between you guys and that round table of people you had talked about, including the uh, professor at Riverside and everything, do you see this as being a way to, to avert any, any conflict in the future, given, given history? Uh, 
I, I think what it is, it's a it's a piece of piece of a larger effort that folks are engaging in to keep the conflict from growing. Like the mm-hmm. the video that really sparked this, that was uh, no pun intended, but it's good PR. That was a tinder box for what started. <laughs> what we're doing, uh, we recognize it as the fire starter that something like this could create major confusion if put in the wrong hands. But at the same time, something like this create major opportunity for folks to sit at the table and to put the elephant in the room on the table and like, look, this is what this has come to. Are are we really having these conversations? Is this really something necessary? And can we, in our edge of it, start to sit down and have conversations? And even if it's confined to just us, then the lives that we save, the lives that we empower will be those across the table but it's, you know, it's our responsibility to do that if we care for each other and if we do a good enough job, someone will see what we're doing and the volume of the voice of what we're doing, our effort will be carried forward by others. And that, you know, that's all we could hope for. Yeah, yeah I, I, I see this as a, you know, it's a, it's a community effort. Um, and um, I think that uh, uh, for us, like just having that relationship, right, with uh, uh, myself and Tim and, uh, we were previously in a in a cohort called Peacemaker, and um, I I think it was just like the it just flows right. It's just naturally like, hey, here's a problem. What can us as Peacemaker do about this, right? Mm-hmm. So that it doesn't escalate into something um, uh, threatening, right? But instead, provide uh, um, like what can we do to uh, make this into a positive spin, right? Instead of uh, you know instead of feeding to the negative. Prior to the conflict starting, the art of conversation seems a little trite or pedestrian. Why do we need to sit around talking? What purpose does that serve? But when violence breaks out, conversation is actually the hardest thing to start. Violence happens when sides decide that the time to talk has concluded. You can think of the work Tim and Billy are doing as a pressure valve set squarely into the side of society. They're working every day to keep that valve open, bleeding off pressure, and making sure that no conversation ever turns to violence. It's thankless work, honestly. That's, that's really what I think it's going to end up being. They're, they're doing the right thing, but it's going to be hard. But it's also some of the most important work you can do to stop this kind of thing before it starts. Here's a little bit more of our conversation. So I'm going to ask you the tough question then, because you, you already asked it yourself just now, which is what can you do? to prevent a conflict or like what steps can you take to prevent a conflict before it starts? Is there a rule book we can have out there and say, all right, if things are getting bad, here's what we do. It's kind of a tough Um, question. (laughs) (laughs) I think in the case like this is, uh, I think with the experience that we have, right. Just, uh, that, uh, we've been through and, um, and not wanting to see um, any more uh, conflict or tension, but wanting to uh, uh, unite in peace. For me, it's, um, it's, it's, I think the crucial uh, part is um, 
drawing everybody together, right, to have a mm -hmm. conversation um, to, um, I guess you could, you know, I don't know about, you know, like a rule book, but it's just uh, my, through my experience and to my, um, um, my instinct is to say, hey, I have to reach out to somebody, right, that, that can um, solve this problem with me, right? Mm -hmm. And that involves a collective effort. Not, you know, I, I know that I can't tackle it alone. Um, okay. Um, and I know that, you know, this needs a community effort. It needs, uh, you know, it needs a collective uh, effort to, uh, you know, to, uh, to move forward. You know, how can we uh, help heal our community, right? Instead yeah. of, uh, you know, how can we uh, put out the flames or how can we, um, you know, de-escalate any tension. But, and the only way, you know, we come to realize is to like share stories, to uh, histories, to, um, to building that understanding and, um, and uh, you know, and that will uh, itself uh, lead towards healing also. Yeah. That's, I think, is that, yeah. I think well, really there's no simple solution mm -hmm. on how to cause conflict. I mean, how to prevent the conflict, but the, the easiest path to it is perspective and perception. If you take the moment to see from somebody else's perspective, you might glean an understanding of why. Because when 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 I first like saw the video, there there's a immediate reaction is like anger, like oh, what is this? But when you when you engage a degree of perspective and you think why anytime, and it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, what, what color your skin is, you know, what your heart looks like. Anytime you think there's a degree of harm being done to somebody you're in relationship with, anger arises mm -hmm. immediately. And your emotions are triggered. But if you can take a moment to take a deep breath when, when possible yeah. and ask yourself, why? You know, what, what is this other person's perspective? If their perspective is in a lane of justification, then there's a, a degree of communication that, take, that can take place. But if their perspective is they just have a dark heart and don't care, and your anger is justified, then it's like, you know, there, there's really no place that you can go and nothing you can do but respond the way you respond. But if you engage a degree of perspective and see that that person is, is Operate, operating from an emotional standpoint, from a, from a heartfelt standpoint, and you're willing to engage in conversation, it can, it can solve, all, you know, it can keep a whole bunch of stuff from happening that's happening. I also want to point out something Billy and Tim say specifically about political organizations and how they interact with the society and their role in this. We didn't get into media. It was one of my regrets that we didn't talk about that. But I do think politics and their view on it is very interesting. So here goes. I mean, you know, politics is, uh, I don't know, you know, we don't trust politics. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, it's, it's people power, right? Like, you know, continue to educate one another, uh, continue to um, build that uh, bond. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and doing so, right, we hope that, you know, the there'll be a culture trend, right? Like. You know, we start here and hopefully it spreads out and um, 
for me, that's that's the hope. Is you know, uh, it has to start somewhere, and um, you know, if we build, I mean, if we continue, and um, you know, we uh, are sincere in our effort to um, to unite communities. And I think you know, even if it's only like 50 people that are impacted, we're, we're still um, um, you know impacting 50 people, uh, 50 lives, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm, I definitely uh, uh, um, strongly. Um, uh, lean towards community effort. Okay. And, I, you know, I'll align myself with Billy, with it is going to take the communities uh, and relationships mm -hmm. to make the kind of change we want, but it's also a political element. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a civic engagement, voters rights, voter education, voter registration person. So, um, for me, it's a point that as communities, we need to realize that politicians are employees. We don't, we, they do not tell us what to do. We tell them what to do. When they're in there, when they're in campaign session, that is a job interview. <laughs> Nobody hires an employee and then let them tell you what to do. There, there's been some, that's why words and communication is so important. Somewhere somebody tweaks something and they convince people to believe that that there's a difference between politics and community there aren't the politicians are supposed to represent and reflect the community and if they don't then they shouldn't be in the positions that they're in and it is a nonpartisan. <coughs> but i mean that that's just the truth i think that's a great reminder that Stopping conflict requires people talking to people and not working through politics necessarily, or especially not working through the media in order to communicate. It's easy to trust in an institution like politics, media, or religion, maybe, to resolve your conflict. And they should step in when they can and when they can be productive. But if there are any incentives in those systems to do otherwise, to, to not resolve conflict, to actually exacerbate it, You've just given away your power to mediate the conflict yourself. As I talked with Angela O oh about the value of community organizations, she also gave us some of her perspective on spirituality and emotion and has one of the best quotes here about the law and spirituality and emotion that I think really kind of, well, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I think right now it's a good time to bring up a biographical note about Angela after the riots. So after they died down, she actually was invited to the Clinton administration's presidential initiative on race. There she joined in sort of national conversations about race, going across the country, putting together a report uh, that really was in response to the L.A. riots and other racial violence. You'll hear her talk about her later career in the law and sort of when she got burnt out on it. And after she was burnt out on the law and politics, for that matter, she undertook a spiritual turn becoming an ordained priest in a Zen Buddhist sect called the Rinzai sect. And 30 years on from the riots, she really has some fascinating perspectives on race relations in the United States, having walked the walk. And I find myself, um, as recently as last month, I just lost it with somebody. This was in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> and I just, you know, I couldn't. And the irony was, you know, in the moment that I lost it, I had just finished a 45-minute meditation. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So I should have been able to take what was coming at me and just let it go. Mm -hmm. 
because that's ultimately my understanding and where I'm at is we need to let go, right? The anger, the greed, the frustration, the fear, the doubt, the suspicion, the delusional thinking, we need to let it go. And we need to see things as they are. But I was just unable to do that. So it just goes to show, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, people where, I mean, there's the Dalai Lama and there's Thich Nhat Hanh and there's my teacher, Tanoi. But, you know, the, at the end of the, of the day, you know, it's just, it's never ending. When the fever of emotion runs high, it seems like we make the most missteps and the most mistakes. And for Angela, it's been a matter of spiritual practice in the latter part of her career here that has helped her bridge the many concerns of the day from racial politics to putting a lid on the propensity of all human beings to resort to emotional outbursts. Letting go means not only letting go of the grief and the pain of past conflict, but also letting go of the artifice. And I, by that I mean, Angela gives us a pretty radical view on the law, but I think it's a valuable one. In this clip, she talks about her experience with meditation and Zen Buddhist practice as one way she's learned to work through issues of of law starting to become, I, I would almost call it predatory or in the wrong direction. And what is interesting to me, having been born and raised in Los Angeles, but coming from a culture that, you know, is across the Pacific and thousands of years old, not hundreds, what I'm observing is the coming together of two very different orientations toward living in this three-dimensional material world. And you, you're hearing it a little bit right now with, you know, in, in the Western frame, it's very much the individual, right? Individual responsibility, individual development, individual rights. We have the Bill of Rights. We have, and, you know, having been a lawyer doing uh, the work that I did, I understand very well you know, the, the frame. And then you have this other culture that totally de- does not value individualism. Mm. Not at all. all right. It is what is in the best interest of the whole. Mm. And if that means some people have to sacrifice, it's okay because the whole is more important than those individuals, yeah. right? It's a very difficult thing to absorb from the frame that, you know, I've grown up in. And I feel like my Zen training has kind of given me that because first you start with the physical pain, right? Okay. Which is what I went through. Right, right. It's physical pain to sit there for hours and hours without moving when the humidity is at, you know, whatever percent and you're just dripping wet, but you cannot move, right? And it's interesting at a certain point to watch how do I respond to physical discomfort? Yeah, And then because you're doing it for days on end, you have this mental and emotional sort of breaking down, not a breakdown, but a breaking down. Like, because especially if you're well-educated, it's harder because your mind is so clever. It can rationalize anything. This is what we see a lot happening in the law. That's why I say the law is the ultimate illustration of delusion right? Delusion is reality by agreement. It's not reality. And the law is all about that, right? And not only is it about 
you know, reality by agreement in this moment, but then we take precedent and we follow this precedent that is no longer relevant to today because that's the way it's set up. And we all agree that we'll follow that. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I say it's the perfect example of delusion. Huh. Right. So yeah, well, the first time I heard her say that it was pretty startling. Well, she mentions precedent that our laws and the ways they're tried in court are reliant on what came before. So in a sense, that's an agreement, right? Yet the systems all around us right now today and the systems, I mean, if you're listening to this a couple of years from now, it'll be the same thing, were and are a legacy of the people who came before us. We engage in these systems willingly every day. You get up and agree that this is how things will work today. It's a, it's a mutual agreement matrix we're all in. And what she's saying here is that you should re-examine that. I don't think she's saying to throw it out. And it almost looks, you know, if you're just listening to it, that she's rejecting the idea of natural law. But I don't think she is. Think back to the tinderbox built during the L.A. riots, right? The problems that the Korean Americans settled into in L.A. were longstanding. They'd been there for a long time. The racism haunting the city was really hundreds of years old. It was as definitely as old as the FDR, he, um, what was it, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and it was probably older than that as well. The economic situation of deindustrialization and the havoc of the crack epidemic was a series of consequences borne out by old understandings of how things were supposed to be done. What I think Angela wants us to do is think outside the box or outside the tinderbox. Letting go of some of the baggage of the past seems to be absolutely critical to stopping these explosions of violence before they happen. It requires immense self-discipline, though, to forget that the economic devastation in L.A. exists or that a little girl was murdered. But what else can you do? Because you can't just let it happen, right? What's funny is that when I interviewed Billy and Tim, their take on the spiritual angle was along the same lines as Angela's. And I mean, they are friends of hers, but I think it's really fascinating to hear from them. And given their personal histories, I think it's worth taking their words and Angela's under consideration. And on a, and like for the spiritual component, uh, for me is everything happens for the, for a reason. You just have to figure out what the reason is and get in that lane. Once you identify yourself with that course, then you're in, you're in line with like you know that universal energy that controls everything and gives it the proper rhythm, the proper cycle, the pro you know that like your heartbeat. Your heart beats a particular way because you know that's the way it's supposed to. And when you lean into that spiritual rhythm, then that's that's where your peace of mind, your calm, your joy can can be found. Very good. Okay, uh, for me, um, um, Angela has been involved with uh, API Rise uh, from you know from the beginning, and um, okay. when I got out, I got involved with uh, API Rise and uh, uh, met her a couple of times. Her and her partner Tutu, but I think it's not until that I actually uh, uh, accepted her invitation to sit on Wednesday that I, uh, we actually uh, you know build a build a. Uh, I consider her my uh, mentor, right? So we built that mentorship. I built that mentorship connection with her. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then when I got uh, detained the second time, you know, she was, like, so very supportive. And um, 
So I guess you know throughout the year we just you know uh, uh, continue to build on that um, that relationship, right? That bond, and um, you know I go to her for you know advice. <laughs> uh, her and her partner Tutu, uh, and um, as far as spiritual, uh, you know, in I five years before I got released, I I, I practiced uh, meditation, um, uh, sit, and I think that you know in during the course of my journey, um, I, I, I realized the major teaching is compassion, right? And, um, hmm. and I think in uh, Buddhist teaching, is, uh, you know, is his goal was to ease the suffering of, uh, of uh, all sentient beings. So I think in, in, in my practice, as far as in the spiritual uh, aspect of it, it's, it's the same as to practice compassion and, um, you know, and to ease suffering. If I see people suffering, um, you know, I... Um, you know, it, it doesn't sit well because, you know, I suffer also. And I think, you know, when, when you um, go into deeper into the, the teaching of Buddhism and you know, the, the whole teaching of emptiness where, you know, everything's not empty, everything's connected, right? So when you look at everything's connected, it's like we are all connected, you know, uh, as human beings, you know, and, um, and it's sad to see that, you know, we are divided, right? between racial, between beliefs, uh, um, you know, uh, Democrat, Republican, whatever, we're, we're constantly divided, you know? So um, it's just for me, it's just, uh, you know, when I see others suffer, right? I, um, you know, I want, to, uh, I want to help, right? So that brings me to, um, you know, doing what I can to help others. And, and look, I am not saying that the spiritual is for everyone. Angela O oh actually recommends something else in another piece on the riots, namely education. You might recognize part of this clip from earlier in the podcast. I had specifically taken out this last part, and I want you to listen to it, and I want to emphasize what she's talking about here. This was my first lesson in understanding. We live in the same space, but we live in parallel universes. So you had the black community seeing reality as their lived experience. You had the Korean immigrant community seeing reality as their lived experience in the same space at the same time. But the understanding was completely different. They could have been across the state from one another. But then you had a system that broke down, and in my opinion it did because of the perfect storm of inexperience on the bench and media and a public that doesn't understand the limits of the law. The law is not the place where race relations is going to get worked out. It simply is not. The only way out is education, to set aside the ignorance that most of us carry around about people who are different from ourselves. So education, right? She says that's the key. So education can come in the form of schooling. And I don't necessarily mean the kind of schooling where you take student loans out to do it. The most valuable education I've ever had has been through a mentor, has been a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody who knows what they're doing and can pass down knowledge to me. Or maybe education comes in the form of a podcast, if I may humbly say so. <laughs> but it seems to me that we have much more to learn about these stressful, intense situations we can create in everyday life through the ways that we do things. We have a lot more to learn about how politics interacts with society and how to live with each other despite tough circumstances and doing 
the important conversational work without mediating it through politics and the media. Is it required that we do this? Do you have to engage in the types of things that Angela, Billy, Tim, and I all talked about? No, of course not. Of course not. But I fear that otherwise, and if you're not mindful of it, you begin to build a tinderbox, one that you can't help but spark. So let's say you want to engage in education or self-reflection. There's no shortcut. Ask anyone who has ever mastered shooting a bow or downhill skiing or calculus how they came to their mastery. They did it invariably through hard work. I actually had a, uh, a philosophy teacher in undergrad, and he always quoted Allen Iverson, who was the big star on these Philadelphia 76ers at the time. And my philosophy professor always said, practice? Who needs practice? And that was allegedly something that Allen Iverson had said to the coach or in a press conference. And my philosophy professor always put this in there because you do need practice. It's a matter of practice to become more thoughtful, to become more understanding, and to become more compassionate. Because in the moment when everything is going wrong, the tinderbox is on fire, there's people in the streets running around screaming at each other, possibly doing violence. In that moment, education is impossible. Nobody's talking. They're fighting. So an education has to start early and it has to be reinforced. It's like planting a tree. The best time to plant was 10 years ago. The second best time is today. You're still going to wait 10 years for it to grow, though. I asked Angela O oh in our interview about race relations now, 30 years on. And she had this to say. First, it was the model minority. Then it was the inscrutable, uh, vicious, young gangsters. Right. Right? And now it is the invisible and really, you know, not um, inconsequential, insignificant, mm-hmm. you know, racial group. And by the way, if you speak up, depending on the political analysis, you know, you're a white person yep. by every definition of this society and its yep. capitalist structure. So shut up and sit down. Right. It's very, very confusing for young progressives who are Asian because they want to support and they don't find the um, space for it. I mean, that was the calls I got yesterday. Gotcha. We want to be out there. We don't know, you know why there isn't more visibility. It's interesting to hear the evolution from her view of Korean American life in the United States and more broadly Asian American life. The evolution in particular is something you should be familiar with because we've talked about it. But now, and maybe it was the same way that things worked in 92, Asian Americans fade into the background. Racial discussions generally just don't include Asian Americans. This is really borne out by one example I want to bring up, which was a group called Students for Fair Admissions. They actually sued Harvard, this group of Asian Americans, over what they saw as discrimination in the affirmative action admissions processes at the Ivy League school. Let me quote from a New York Times article about a judge's decision to dismiss the case by the Students for Fair Admissions. Quote, Students for Fair Admissions includes more than a dozen Asian American students who applied to Harvard and were rejected. They contend in their lawsuit that Harvard systematically discriminates against Asian American applicants in violation of federal civil rights civil rights law by penalizing their high achievement as a group while giving preferences to other racial and ethnic minorities. They say that Harvard's admission process amounts to an illegal quota system. 
Harvard says its admission system is finally calibrated to produce a spectrum of diversity, not only of race, but of income, ideas, geographic origin, and talents. The group's Apple at filing, quote, further exposes their ultimate goal of removing the consideration of race in college and university admissions, end quote, Harvard said in a statement Tuesday. That's the end of their article. So end quote there. The judge in this case ultimately sided with Harvard over their attempts to build a specific community that was in their mind. And the Students for Fair Admissions appealed it. We'll see where that goes. May go nowhere. Angela O oh also mentioned one of the strangest phenomena of Asian Americans' place in the racial makeup of the United States. It's perhaps the phenomenon that spurred that Harvard decision. And by the way, if you speak up, depending on the political analysis, you know, you're a white person yep. by every definition of this society and its yep. capitalist structure. So shut up and sit down. All right. This wasn't the first time I've heard this from an Asian American. Somebody said something similar to once to me that they often forgot that they were Asian. That's something that you don't hear in other conversations about race. So what I think it's important to understand from Angela O's point of view is that things remain complicated to this day, and we have not done all the work we need to do in order to create the America that we want. So as we draw this podcast down to a close, I imagine you're saying, well, what was the point? All right, well, what, where do we, what are we getting to? What's the answer? But as Angela O oh says... The, the thing that I wanted to say is that when people uh, are faced with really um, insurmountable and really com complicated, unanswerable situations... There are no answers. And this is a generation that wants answers. There are no answers out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you really do have to go inward. You really have to look at what is inside. This is where you're going to find some answers. Yeah. And those answers will guide your actions. That's right. My disappointed listeners, there are no concrete answers. These are thorny issues that will be with us for a very long time. The struggle for understanding and compassion just does not end. The struggle is eternal. The struggle went on before you were born, and it will go on after you die, and you can spend an entire lifetime struggling internally, not just externally, but also internally, to figure out what the best thing to do is. I think what the lesson is that I want to take away here, and it's not really a solution, it's more of a lesson, it's that forging a society that we want requires upkeep. We have to recognize its ills and know that it's not just economic data or crime statistics or what this politician says or what the media is saying, but also on a baser level, recognizing the signs of anger before they start. Korean Americans learned the hard way, as a community living in the United States of America, that they had to go it alone. They had to represent themselves. They had to create the organizations and community that would guide them and let destiny take its course when it came to that. But let me end this podcast on a high note. Because 30 years on, Korean American life has changed. Something that would have been unthinkable to people living in 1992 recently happened, namely the story of Johnny Kim. The Kim family emigrated to the L.A. area in the 1980s. Sound familiar? Johnny's mother worked as a substitute teacher, and his father opened a liquor store. I think I've heard this story before. After the tragic death of his father at the hands of police, Johnny actually continued to thrive in school. 
He was extremely bright. He later joined the Navy and then got into the SEALs and participated in over 100 combat missions as a combat medic, a sniper, and a point man, and was awarded medals for pulling wounded soldiers out of the line of fire. He went on to receive a BA in mathematics from the University of San Diego and his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. And most recently, and this is what's probably was unbelievable, is that NASA hand-selected Johnny out of 18,300 candidates to join NASA Astronaut Group 22. Can you imagine 18,300 candidates for a job? Yeah. Johnny now awaits a flight with his team on the Artemis space program. Johnny's story is the story of a new Korean America. And that's a wrap. I want to thank you for listening to Angel Fire. It's been a lot of fun bringing this podcast to you. And as I said before, it was a lot of work because it was no easy task, and I hope you found it compelling and interesting all the way through. Tell your friends. Please note that mistakes and omissions here are my own. I take responsibility for them, and if need be, I'll publish a supplemental error correction podcast and correct it as we go if needed. I hope I've done a fair job at showing you how the L.A. riots went down, how Korean Americans dealt with it, and how we might learn from it. I would also be posting a supplemental podcast, I almost forgot, called Sources and Methods, with some of my research methodology, a list of good sources, of which there were many, and also you'll be able to see in the show notes a total bibliography, or as much as I can fit in there. A few thank yous. Abby and Byung and Byung's mother helped immensely with pronunciation. Vanderbilt News Archives helped me obtain historical footage. And a special thank you to Billy and Tim and Angela for the gift of their time and their perspective. This podcast would not be the same without their words. I always like to tease out my next series at the end of a series, and I'm excited to tell you that I want to focus on yet another underexamined slice of American history. That's right. No easy way out here. It combines my own training in Islamic studies with the theme of this podcast, namely Bedlam and Chaos. That's Islam in Black America. And in our next major podcast series, I hope to get into the conflict that went on between the United States federal government, specifically the FBI, but I imagine it goes way beyond that, and the American followers of an Eastern religion, Americans who put their own spin on the teachings of a Middle Eastern prophet who lived thousands of years before them. Black Islam has interested me since I worked at West Philadelphia, meeting Americans practicing a religion that I'd studied only in a Middle Eastern context. So that should be a fun ride, and I hope you'll join me for it, likely around the end of this year, or honestly, it's going to be in the beginning of 2021, judging by how fast I can get these things out. But have no fear, and between then and now, I plan on bringing you one-off podcasts about interesting things that don't require four-plus hours of listening or tons and tons and tons of research. If you haven't listened to the back catalog at Tinderbox, you might check out the Battle of Athens podcast, Counted as Cast, or my small series about public health in America called Outfluenza. And hey, if you can't get enough of my voice, there's stuff in between too. So for now, I'll tell you to cruise by the SoundCloud page or the Facebook page to uh, comment on these. Remember, we have a real live email address now. It's tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com. No the, just tinderboxpodcast. And I hope to hear from you if you have any questions or thoughts. And so for now, I sign off and ask you to stay safe out there in the tinderbox.